Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen of the Baha'i Blogcast, thank you for tuning in to this very special episode. I'm here with one of my dearest Baha'i friends, uh, the fantastic Omid Jalili, comedian, author, humanitarian, roustabout, actor, um, the, the round mound of Alawabha, the bald Buddha of Belgravia, uh, sitting here in my London hotel room. We wanted to wait to have this conversation uh, until we were person to person, because you can just feel the electricity here. No, we didn't. We didn't want to have a conversation over Skype because the interviews always go better when you're in person, and we wanted to wait. And until we're this. very close right now, which is great. We're very close. Yes. Um, and you took me to my first uh, football game. First Premier League football match: Chelsea versus Manchester United. Which, if you're a soccer fan, that is one of the big games. That's in one the of the big games. It was fantastic yeah. too. It was, I, didn't I say just before it happened? Let's wait. There could be a dramatic ending, and there was. And right 30 seconds before the game was over, 30 seconds, Chelsea tied it. He was just telling me some story, and I was saying, I wish Rain would shut up, because (laughs) something good could happen any minute. Although although you were checking your Twitter, and I had to nudge you when when Man U almost scored. (laughs) And you were like, thank you, thank you. Thank you, though. It was great. And in fact, there was a big fight on the touchline. I just saw as well. One of the Chelsea... Chelsea were in the wrong. They went to the manager, Jose Mourinho, and were... Gloating, and then he got up and chased them, and there was a big melee. So. Now you've been a you've been a football fan uh, all my life, your whole life. Yes. I read your autobiography. Thank you. You read mine. I I, I have. Let's it. move on. The um, you talked about how Chelsea, the Chelsea players were your gods growing up, mm. and you grew up in Central London. Yes. Um, tell me about your. Uh, your childhood, so many great stories in your book. What's what's your autobiography called It's called, called Hopeful again? because it was one of the, my first jokes was uh, that my name Jalili. Omid actually means hope. Mm-hmm. It's a shame that Jalili means less. That was one of my first stand-up <laughs> comedy jokes. And uh, so we thought we'd call it Hopeful because I think my story is very much the, the underdog come good. Mm-hmm. I think that was the idea behind it. It's and an I, immigrant story. It's an immigrant story. And uh, I, I actually was raised in central London in Kensington, literally a stone's throw from Kensington Palace, which is where Prince Charles and Diane lived. And um, it's right by Hyde Park. And it's also very near, Baha'is would be interested, to, very near the Albert Hall, where the first International Congress took place when they voted in the Universal House of Justice. Oh, fantastic. And it's a very famous story, which was on the front page of the Times, which had um, a Persian man, a few Persians pulling a policeman off his police horse. And it said, and the headline was, Baha'i Mob Attacks Police. And uh, I did some interesting research into that. And actually what had happened, the Royal Garden Hotel, which is on High Street, Kensington, next to Hyde Park, is where a lot of the Persian Baha'is had booked themselves in for the Congress in April 1963. And um, on the first day, there were so many people were kissing each other and saying, Allah, Pa, they spilled out from the pavement onto the road. And there were so many of them, there were hundreds, that the police horses were brought forward to push them back. And all the policemen could hear was, Allah, pa, kiss, kiss, Allah, pa. And he got angry with them, because could you move back? And then he said, could you please move back, you crazy Allah, pa's? And a Persian behind went, eh, 
Aloha Pa, because they thought he was a buy as well. And they went to grab him, and someone took a picture, and it looked like he was being pulled off. Awesome. They were going the to try and kiss him. They were trying to kiss him, and it was the headline behind mob attack police. So, <laughs> so that's where I was raised. That actually a stone's throw. Whenever you tell moment. a story, I don't know if it's a setup for a punchline. It's punch true. Line. It's true. That's a true story. Wow, that's fantastic. And uh, what brought your family to uh, to England? When did they move here? They moved here. In fact, it's an interesting story. They um, my they met in the 1950s, and my mother was a dressmaker, and she always wanted to move to London because Carnaby Street again, not far from where we lived, was the centre of uh, fashionistas and dressmakers. My mother was a dressmaker, and she said, if you want to marry me, take me to England. And unfortunately, my parents got married very shortly after The Guardian passed away. So they were very upset that they had a very muted... For Baha'is to have a wedding after November 4th, 1957... Mm was deemed to be disrespectful. So they had a very muted... It was more like a, a funeral kind of memorial mm. for Shoghi Feni, their wedding. So uh, they moved to England in 1958 to pursue this world. My father was a photographer and my mother was a dressmaker. And she ended up doing... She, she did uh, the singer Gugush, uh, who was a famous singer. Yeah, she did her costume changes. During her. Oh no, kidding! So we, we were in central London. We had people like so Gugush many staying. Iranian singers have mm. like one name. They're all like Cher. Gugush, Cher They're yeah. like Blish Duke, Bliblas, Yeah. Let's just make up noises for me. <laughs> My favorite person to sing is Blaz. That's the best one. <laughs> he, she's fantastic. <laughs> um, but now I'm vaguely remembering some stories. I read your uh, yes. your book several years ago. I'm vaguely remem- remembering some stories about. People coming through your house was like yes. a revolving door of of immigrants and people passing through to get operations in London. Yes. And you grew up with uh, it was it was quite an adventure in your house. Can you tell us a little bit about yes, that? Yes, uh, my parents ran a, what you what you would possibly call a pension illegally as well. They, were, they weren't mm-hmm. paying tax on it. They weren't um, you know they weren't even allowed with a block of flats to have more than a few people stay. We had like 15, 16 people staying, all of them needing medical attention. And some of them uh, were quite well-to-do people who could have stayed in hotels, but they wanted that communal feeling of being with other Persians because people playing backgammon, TV was on, radio was on. There was always noise in the house. But also the people came from the villages who'd never seen a Western toilet before. So they were so used to those toilets in the ground where you put your feet on either mm-hmm. side. Uh-huh. And I remember someone saying, where's the toilet? And I said, here. And he looked at the toilet. He said, where's the toilet? I said, that's it. And we shut the door, and then we heard a massive crash, and he actually stood up on the <laughs> toilet seat and literally broke his backside as he landed, and he <laughs> needed extra medical attention. So lots of funny things happened in the house. I remember. I actually remember someone was on the toilet, and they broke wind very loudly, and then they must have ruptured a nerve down there somewhere, which was connected <laughs> to the heart, and he collapsed. And we, after we broke the door down, we saw him literally with his trousers around his ankles, face in the bath. <laughs> and he was dead. And I remember we had to take him out, and it was extraordinary. So extraordinary things happened. My home was one of the craziest That's places. the most macabre story that's ever been told on this blog it is. before. This, my, my family... But he died, he, he died, died of a fart. He, he died, died of a... Of a can we say so fart? It can be. Yes. He, died, he broke um, wind and died. It was an extraordinary that's thing. That's good to know. It's a good, it's a good lesson. This is why the Jalili family... Uh, you know, I'm a minority within a minority within a minority because even, you know, as a Baha'i, we're not, you know... Muslims, Iranians, Muslims, Baha'is are the minority. And then even within the Baha'i community... 
um, my family think, yeah, there's the Baha'i, then there's the Jalilis. And then even within the Jalili family, I thought my family were crazy. You're, so I'm a minority. You're an outcast in the Jalili family. I, exactly. Mm-hmm. I'm a minority within a minority within a minority. Fascinating so. fun fact about toilets. I once read an article that said the toilet was the most successful human invention ever because it has yes. not been improved upon since its first iteration. Think about it. It has a U-shaped uh, pipe, right? Mm-hmm. It uses water as a sealer to keep the odor from coming up, and right. it has the, the tank, the whole idea of like a toilet tank. Those are the first toilets. But that's great. No, you can't, no, you can't improve it. And the toilet is one of my favorite places. It's my most creative space. It's mm. where I go after. I, I, I write my best jokes in there. Do you really? I do, in fact. Do you remember a joke that you wrote on a toilet? Yes, I do, because um, I was in a hotel room in Helsinki, and the, this is a true story, right? By the way, all the best stories begin with that phrase. I was in a toilet in Helsinki, Mm -hmm. and that's not just the venue I was playing, it was actually in my hotel room, and I'd made an observation that the the, the Finnish language, Finland's in Scandinavia, and you know, we always say, oh, the Scandinavians, you know, from the Muppets, but the Finns are different, like, hello in Finnish, is trve, trve. It's like trve. It's a, I don't know if they were talking or if their lungs were collapsing. It was a very <laughs> weird language. So I, I, when I was on the toilet, I thought of this and I said it on stage and I got like a few walkouts, which was, I said, hey, I said, um, Helsinki, you're amazing language. I was on the cab on the way to the hotel and I broke wind. I farted loudly and the taxi driver said, hey, where did you learn to speak Finnish? <laughs> And then he said something in Finnish, which later meant, for God's sake, open the windows. <laughs> so that was on the toilet, I thought of that. That's fantastic. I even, I think I did a little joke for you when you rang me up. You rang me up on the toilet. Yes. I, said, I did. That, there's... Here's the sound of my career. And then I put the toilet and I flushed to make the sound of a flushing I, I, My son and I went to uh, Iceland and uh, I was struck by just how long... Everything takes five times as long to say in Icelandic. Yes, it's ridiculous. So they'd be on the bus, they'd have an English and Icelandic translation, so they'd say... Welcome to Iceland. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You knew where I was going with that. So here you are, a child in this uh, pension, this Persian pension in Mm. central London, and um, how, how do you get from there to comedy? Well, that's a very good answer because my um, one of my favourite comedians in Britain is a guy called Harry Hill who uh, made me laugh so much I remember crying with laughter after half an hour and I couldn't laugh anymore. And then I read he was a doctor and he felt that as a doctor he did better making his patients laugh than actually the medical procedures that he was taught. So he left stand-up. He, he left medicine and went into stand-up comedy. And then I noticed my parents, they tried to create an atmosphere of fun. It wasn't just playing backgammon and enjoying ourselves. Like they would always do jokes over breakfast. Would you like your, you know, your eggs boiled, scrambled or fondled? They'd always do jokes about, because balls means eggs. Uh, eggs means balls in Farsi. And uh, so they was always doing, and I said, why are you doing this? Because I thought as a young Baha'i, this is quite inappropriate. And they said, no, it makes people laugh. And, and if people laugh and are happy, they recover quicker. So I made that connection pretty early on that laughter was conducive to well-being. So mm. that's when I thought, wow, this, this, could be, this could be fun. So I was always learning to tell stories. 
I was always learning at school. It got like, to be slightly popular, I'd tell jokes. And then when you got to like 14, 15, and guys were, you know, finding themselves sexually and people were like making out at parties. I never did that, so I just used to... While people were making out, I'd be with someone's grandmother, like telling jokes. <laughs> and, you know, I was like, that dorky kid who was like telling jokes to someone's grandmother in the next room. So I found that humour was a, a, a tremendous coping mechanism and actually something that was healing for myself as well. And it, I just like people smiling and laughing. And I remember thinking, if you just tell them a joke, and, I, and because my parents told jokes and they told stories, I just would repeat those jokes in English and get the similar laugh. So I thought it was a great tool to communicate. And also being an ethnic minority, I always felt very keenly I wanted them to be, to, to like my Iranianness because, you know, when I was 13, 14, 15. Was that a source of a lot of your humor? Well, it was because, you know, the Iranian revolution happened around 78, 79. Mm-hmm. So all people saw on television was Islamic fundamentalists beating their chests. And, mm-hmm. and there was always awful images coming from You were Iran. a teenager at that time. I was not just a teenager, but an adolescent. Mm-hmm. So with hormones raging, with girls finding, oh, he's from Iran. Ugh. I even pretended I was Italian for a while, which didn't last very long. And, uh, I, and I didn't want to be Iranian. But then when I accepted it, I thought, well, maybe I can do jokes about Iranian culture and my Iranianness to gain favour with middle class, kind of middle England. Did you experience a lot of uh, prejudice being an immigrant kid uh, in the yeah, 70s in, in London? Yes, mm-hmm. I did. So it was a way also to... I don't, I don't want to ingratiate the wrong word, but to, to make friends to as a kind of social lubricant and yes. to have people get to know you? It, it was. And I think that a, a major handicap I had, age 14, I became very attached to some bum fluff, some, a moustache I had, because I thought I looked like Magnum. You know, who, who played Magnum? You had a Tom Selleck moustache at Mustard. 14? Yes, probably even earlier at 13. And I, everyone and you, said, shave it off. And, and I said no, it. and I said no, and I didn't realize that was the source of all my un- unpopularity. <laughs> they thought I would look weird, and so no, had you shaved your mustache, you probably would not have become a stand-up comic. I probably would have had my first go at making noise. I probably would have had a girlfriend at fifteen or sixteen. Mm-hmm. Not that I, I'm, I didn't even want a girlfriend, but I always felt that people were disgusted by me, and they were disgusted by my my culture. So um, yeah, I think had I shaved it off, my life would have been very different. I probably would have been. You know, I would have prime minister. Into, well, not prime minister, but I probably would have had a gone into computing or something. But I, 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 I do. I'm very glad that I was really awkward, as I'm sure you were. weren't you an awkward? I was a very awkward youth. Yeah, um, yeah. And humor is a coping mechanism and a way to get by. And, yes. and for me, you know, quite honestly, if I made girls laugh, then they liked me and wanted to hang out with me more. Yes, exactly. And I was very insecure, so I just went down that path. So, in, in a sense, you could say it's a classic case of a young, displaced, um, ethnic minority immigrant mm. mentality, very ugly, unattractive to girls, boy trying to find his place in the world by trying to be funny and get, have people not so much even like him but warm to his culture. Because, again, I felt very Iranian and, and to feel that accepted. But you, you, you've used your comedy to kind of bridge the gap of different cultures. Mm-hmm. I always feel like when I see one of your shows that I learn something about Persian culture and I come away with a warmer feeling about Persian culture after one of your shows. Even if you're making fun of some aspects, um, uh, there's a warmth there. There's there's a love there. 
You, have you built a lot of bridges? Have are you? Um, I've burned a lot of bridges. Well. <laughs> Certainly, we'll get to that. Well, I, I learned. This is this is what you learn as well. You learn from your mistakes. I remember um, there was a big Nauru's party I was hosting once in 1996, and they asked me to do it because it was a big London thing. It was at the Ealing Town Hall. And there was like 500 people there, and they goes, "Omijan, we want you to speak in English, but also do Persian translation." And I was saying, "Why?" Yeah, there's some Persians there. It'd be nice for you. And I said, but they can speak English. No, but it's nice. It's Persian New Year. And I got it into my head. I said, this is really wrong. This is really wrong. There were a lot of English Baha'is here. There were a lot of English Baha'is aboard. They're English friends. This is wrong. So I went up there and I said, um, friends, this is a Nauru's party. We're going to have some dancing. There'll be some food. And just kick back and relax. And we're going to start with some music. As his little translation for the friends in Farsi. And I said in Farsi... Um, quick translation for anybody who's been living in this country for over 30 years and they still need a translation. And I went, Chak to Salatun, which means dust on your hair, which means you should, you're a bunch of idiots, basically. And then one by one, family members were coming, like my dad's sister said, e -e Omi Chan, please make an apology. I said, No, I was going, No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to apologize. And then my uncle came, Omi Chan, people are really angry with you. Just say a little apology and then carry on. And I said, no, I'm not going to do this. And the evening just became more and more. It was a war fraught. of attrition. It was uh -huh. fraught and it was all, and people were complaining. And there was no need for me to do it. So then I realised, actually, I ruined that particular evening by being too focused on this on this one issue. So it was, yeah, I burned all the bridges. But this whole thing, if you're saying if it if it did make people warm to culture. I think if you, if anybody like, you know, George Lopez does great stuff and he's Mexican. And if, if you love him, you kind of like Mexican culture a bit more. When I see Dave Chappelle or Chris Rock do, do really well, I think, you know, I really love black Americans. I love African Americans. So I think it's, it's I, I was very glad to be part of that first vanguard because we've never really seen Iranians doing stand-up comedy in the mainstream of Britain. Mm. That was the idea. So how did how did you go professionally into comedy? What's the first time you were on stage? You went to college in, in Northern Ireland. Did you start doing comedy there? You were studying theater. I studied theater. It was really when I finished university. I did uh, <clears throat> some theater, and I met my wife, who had seen a very uh, been at university with a famous comedian called Alan Davis, who was a very well known British celebrity comedian and a very good comedian. And she said, "Why don't you try it?" And I said, "Try what?" She said, stand-up comedy. I remember saying, what's that? She took me to the comedy store, and I'd never been. And I was shocked that she thought I could even do this. It was stand-up comedians with stand-up sets. And I'd done a little bit of storytelling. I'd done a, a best man speech at some wedding. I'd maybe done a few sketches. I'd never done stand-up mm -hmm. comedy. And she says, well, you've been doing this anyway. Do you remember that thing you did at the Baha'i Summer School? That stand-up comedy. Remember you did that at so-and-so's wedding? That stand-up comedy. So I said, well, will you help me? So I put together a five-minute set. And amazingly, it worked. I mean, so many million, well, thousands of people in Britain try and be a comedian. There's literally open spotters and... Yeah. It's, it's like a sperm, you know, fertilizing the egg. It's like... <laughs> the chances of getting through. The chances through. are yeah. very, mm -hmm. very little. And just even getting your first laugh. And I'll never forget, I think, one of my... One of my first ever jokes, that, that one I said, Omid and Hope and Shame that Jalili is less. Uh, and, and then another night I said, my name is Omid Abu Abdel Qasim Atahad Ibrahim Mamduha. But call me Trevor. I think that was one of the first <laughs> jokes. So I'm glad it still gets a laugh. There was all this nonsense which would make Baha'is laugh. But I never thought the stuff that... That's the thing. That's why I love this idea 
My wife is very against the term non-Baha'i because it's so stupid. We are all people. And if you, if you use the word non-Baha'i, it means you haven't understood the Baha'i faith. Mm. Nobody is a non-Baha'i. Mm-hmm. So she was, because I was saying it's amazing that Baha'is laugh at them, the non-Baha'is laugh. She goes, get that out of your brain. This is back in the 90s. Do not use that. And she was a new Baha'i. She goes, get that word out. There's no such thing as a new Baha'i. This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. There are just people. And what, what you do is if it's, if it's funny, it, it'll translate. So I, when I did that shift that, oh, the stuff I'm doing before Baha'is, and then here's some stuff for non-Baha'is. Once I got that out of my brain, then I realized you can perform for both. And it doesn't matter. What funny is funny. Mm. And that's when I, that was a very important lesson to learn. And then... I started a journey of trying to build up a 20-minute set. And, was and that just magical when a joke that you had created in your yes. head run by your wife and you try it on stage and you get a laugh, you get a big laugh from a crowd? It is it, magical. Was it, was it like an electric shock? Yes, it was. And it was... But then again, I had been getting laughs from the Baha'i audiences, but it was a shock where there was people with literally... In those days, they could smoke indoors with beers in their hands and they'd just seen an act that was quite filthy... And I thought, how am I going to follow this? Mm-hmm. And they did laugh, and it was extraordinary. And in general, I learned, one thing I learned in comedy, if, so, if I think something's really funny, and I can do that, they will laugh. If I, some, if I think something is really off the scale funny, that's when they don't laugh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, I remember, I mean, here's an example of something that I thought, I nearly died laughing. I did it to myself in the mirror, and I <laughs> was on the floor. I got lightheaded, and I thought I was going to die. <laughs> I did, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> And then when I did it to a crowd, nobody thought it was funny. And it was just, I just read somewhere that Robert Mugabe, you know, from the Zimbabwean leader, mm-hmm. that he was quite, people didn't understand him because he was quite inc- incoherent when he spoke. So I did this sketch to myself of a BBC journalist saying, Mr. Mugabe, how do you answer accusations that you're getting more and more incoherent? And Mugabe says, la, 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 la. <laughs> Which I thought, was the fun, but can you imagine doing that in front of an audience and just like nothing, just silence, absolute I silence. I once did an industry event and I was introducing Forrest Whitaker. And <laughs> okay, this is something you thought I, was funny. I thought it was so funny. And fortunately, Forrest Whitaker was canceled from the event. Okay. So I didn't use the joke, but it was said like, I said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the next guest, I'm so honored to introduce. I remember when I was starting out in the industry, I met this man. Uh, Forrest Whitaker, and he gave me words of advice that I'll never forget. I said, Mr. Whitaker, do you have any inspiration for a young actor? And he turned to me, he looked at me, and he said, (laughs) That's a similar (laughs) joke. (laughs) That's funny. Because he always, he's so mumbly, you know? Exactly, that's great. I I was so excited to tell it, but I'm glad he didn't show up, and I'm glad I didn't tell it, because it might have been a little too offensive. I love that. And that kind of stuff is, you see, it's very, very funny. And yours was fantastic mumbling, but mine was a, a selection of jazz notes. <laughs> I remember doing it five or six times. It was that was the it was la 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 that's it that's the one, and I think that's what finished myself. But you see, what what you think is really funny sometimes will not translate. Sure, sure. So any other problems being yes. uh, marrying comedy and the Baha'i faith? That's a very good question. It's tricky, right? It it's is tricky. Very I know tricky. people have been very offended by things that I've said, things that I've tweeted. 
sketches that I've been in that have been raunchy. It's a it's a tricky line to navigate and to walk, and I've certainly made a lot of mistakes. Mm. Um, but at the same time, there is something in me, and I think you share this, mm. where sometimes what's funny is just a little over the edge. Sometimes mm. what's funny is uh, when you're just kind of pushing the envelope a little bit and, and you're a little bit in the dark side, mm. and that's where... It, it it makes me laugh the hardest. But yes. how how have you navigated this? It's a difficult one to navigate. That's the thing. I've I've always tried to. You see, let me, let me pick up that question again. That that's a great question, and it's it's some advice that certain Baha'is have given me is usually the first advice that I've rejected, which is usually they say, you know, Rui Hanum once said, if Abdul Baha was in the room. Would you do it for Abdul Baha? You know? <laughs> Which is, the, if that was the case, I wouldn't even. I yell it. I yell it. I, I, actually, Abdul Baha would find that very funny. But <laughs> we can't say that. But the thing is, I've always, and I told this to you a while ago. This is a this is a very good question. It's something that plays on my mind a lot. And usually, what other Baha'is tell me is not that helpful. Although once, I have to tell you this, and I don't know if I should tell you this. I don't know if it was these very private conversations I had with members of the House of Justice. I think I shared this with you once that I was in Haifa, just as I'd got my own TV show. I mean, you get the Omid Jalili show, BBC One, primetime, Saturday night. And they just wanted stand-up and sketches. That's all they wanted. And I thought I'd go to Haifa and pray and get some advice. And I didn't meet with the House of Justice as an institution, uh, but they did meet, you know, for a lunch or a dinner and privately told me, what they thought. And they gave me four bits of advice, which is very interesting. I'd love to share it with you. The first Please. thing the first thing they said is, number one, whatever you do, don't be afraid to make mistakes. I think that was the, the most liberating Oh, that's beautiful. Thing. That's beautiful. You will make mistakes, and you will make those mistakes, and you will, you will decide when something is a mistake. That was the first thing they said, but don't be afraid. The worst thing you can do is be afraid. If you're afraid, then you, that is, causes inertia. Just do it, mm-hmm. and then it's just a great rule for life, isn't it? A great rule and a great for life. rule of being a Baha'i. You know, we're always encouraged to kind of make mistakes yeah. as Baha'i. Make mistakes. We all make Try mistakes. Things. And they all just said, "Make mistakes." We are. They all say, "We make mistakes." Everyone makes mistakes. You know. So that was the first thing. Number two, they said, uh, "Don't listen to other Baha'is," which I thought was amazing. <laughs> that was an amazing. Amazing. That was the most amazing thing they said. Like they even were saying things like, you know. They were joking amongst us. I said, Mr. Mitchell here is very funny, Glenford Mitchell. But if, if he was an authority of, of comedy, then I wouldn't listen to him. He's not an authority. He doesn't know what the trends are. He's not in the business. So to be in the business, to know what will make the populace laugh and keep you respected amongst your peers, that's a very different thing. So we don't know any Baha'is who've been in this field, so don't listen to Baha'is. And that was a rule. Mm. That was rule number two, which I thought was amazing. And I was thinking, this is amazing. They said, rule number three, and this is very important, which shocked me. They said, be political. And I said, you're going to need to elaborate on that. They said, it doesn't mean get involved in party politics. It doesn't Mm. mean um, espouse the values of the left or the Mm. right. Mm. But engage in the discourses of the day. Fantastic. They said, so whatever the discourses are, so for example, now, 
if we like Brexit, for example, Brexit's a big thing, but it's a very big political animal, very, very political subject. Mm -hmm. And if you, I know as a comedian, if I was to say I'm pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit, you immediately, it's so divisive, half, literally, because if that was like a 52, 42-48% vote, you're going to alienate one group. So they were saying, but you don't feel you shouldn't speak about it. You should speak about it. I said, well, isn't there something about Shoghi Effendi says, don't mention names, don't people... They said, no, if there are dictators or if there are people saying dumb things and you want to make fun of it, go ahead. Like Mugabe. Well, that that was a political... That was me as a Baha'i thinking, what's the most... What's the funniest non-political thing I can do? And it was a series of jazz notes. Um, so, uh, but, but that's that's fascinating. Like, uh, before you get to, I want to hear more about mm. rule number three. But before you get to four, um, as Baha'is, we've been encouraged now for ten years to engage in the discourses yes. of society. And what a better way to do that than through comedy and mm. through stand-up comedy? And some of the greatest political thinkers we've ever had have been comedians. Yes. Uh, some of the people that have, like, really, like, unraveled the essence of who we are culturally or what's going on yeah. uh, uh, have have come from from comedians. So it's a, it's a great way to, to foster uh, dialogue. They actually said in the future comedians are going to be seen, this is from the House members saying, comedians will be seen as intellectual luminaries, maybe even seen as the philosophers of the time. So we'd like you to be that kind of comedian or, at least comedian, or at least aspire to be someone who will be a force of good rather than just someone where you laugh and you forget about it. I always think about, and it's not a popular comedian to bring up right now, but I have to just on this, while we're on this topic of Louis C.K.'s amazing monologue where he's on the airplane, they're in first class, mm-hmm. and the Wi-Fi goes down and they're flying from New York to L.A. Yeah, and yeah, the guy next to him says like, ah, oh, the yeah. Wi-Fi went down. Can you believe mm-hmm. this? And he had went that whole monologue about, can you believe it? We're flying through the air, mm. 20,000 miles above the earth, wow. and sitting in these marvelous chairs, and we have, you know, at our, at our fingertips, we have the ability to find out any piece of knowledge that exists on the planet. And, and, and this guy goes, oh, that's BS. And I think about that all of the time, like the miracles that are around us all the time, but our inclination as humans to focus on what's wrong or what's broken or what's not going right or what yeah. uh, makes us unhappy or frustrated and to overlook, you know, all the miraculous things happening around us. He just said, didn't he say that we, we're living in the most amazing time mm-hmm. with amazing things given to the worst generation, like the most <laughs> entitled, appalling generation. Yeah, and I think if we can comment on that as Baha'is in a nice way, Mm-hmm. Like, for example, what I said to you the other night. It was very difficult. It was a new material night. I'm preparing for my... We'll get to point four, by the way, from the okay, House of Justice right. in a second. But I, it's it's a difficult one because you want to be able to be relevant in a way which is also kind. Like, for example, there was a new material night and they said you could get on at nine o'clock. There's a, three comedians before you. They'll warm them up and then it'll be great. And then I was watching the three comedians and they were coming out with the most vulgar, the most appalling stuff that actually the audience wasn't laughing at at all. They were genuinely seemed offended. They were shifting and, and they were really terrible. I mean, really, really terrible. It was, I can't even repeat the things they were saying. Um, and I thought, well, ITV are going to film my set. The cameras are there because they're going to show it to the ITV bosses. I've got to get a few laughs. There has to be some kind of semblance that this is a comedy club. So I went on and I said, you're probably wondering why I'm here. It's because... Um, 
I like to go backstage and hang around with the younger comedians and say discouraging things to break their spirits, hoping that they'll like retire from stand-up comedy. Then I watch them and steal all their best material. So anyway, and I started repeating the worst, most appalling jokes that they had said. All of, all containing of them. Containing these terrible These swear terrible words swear words, vulgar, the worst, vulgar, mo- the w- most appalling vulgar. The grotesquities. The grotesquities, when it got massive laughs. But, but then someone told me, which I didn't tell you, Rain, someone told me they were there that night, they were standing uh, right on the side where they could see me and they could see the comedians behind the, the curtain. And the comedians were laughing. The same comedians I was kind mm-hmm. of making fun of, mm-hmm. they were laughing their heads off. Mm-hmm. So they were not being chastised. Mm-hmm. They had tried some material that didn't work with this. A comedian the, knows when, the, when their material bombs, they, and they, bombed, they, they have to have they have to develop a thick skin and a sense of humor about that. Exactly, and they did not mind. And so I think that that's what pleased me so much. This is probably never going to happen again. I'll probably never be in a bill of, of such appalling comedians. But they, I really appreciated my own values of trying to get a laugh, warm up the crowd, and also acknowledge what happened in the room was they heard some very vulgar things that didn't make them laugh, and we acknowledged that, and we moved on. So I was very happy with that moment. And that was that. then brings me on to um, the fourth, the fourth and final point mm-hmm. the members of the House of Justice said. So they were, number one, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Number two... Don't listen to other Baha'is. And number three, be political. So these are, so be political, be relevant, and be kind as well. You're going to be, don't, don't be also too hard. Don't mm-hmm. be, mm-hmm. you know. And the final thing they said was the one that affected me the most. And they said, when you're in it, be absolutely assured of divine assistance. Wow. And I said, what do you mean? They goes, you're doing something new. No one's ever done it before. Just say prayers and they will... They will help you. And a number of times I feel that I have been assisted is extraordinary. Uh, one time I can tell you where I wasn't assisted, which is quite funny because <laughs> I've got to tell you this, because I had a joke which had a great build-up but didn't have a punchline. So I thought, I'm going to say prayers for a punchline. I'll say prayers. I said, ya I don't have a punchline. Could you send someone to give me a punchline? So I had a dream that night. This person came to me and said, you know that routine you're doing there? How about this as a punchline? And I woke up. I said, did I just dream that? And the, and the punch- this is a true story. True story. You, got a, you had got a punchline delivered in a dream. Punch now, line. was it like Abdul Baha or anything No, no, like no. That? It, it was, was just... an English guy in a suit. <laughs> it was just, okay, okay. He had a moustache as well. Okay, like it, you at 13? Like me at 13, but he looked kind of awkward. He was English and with moustache. It was very strange, but he just, he looked socially awkward, but he gave me this line. And I woke up and I went to my computer and I said, do you know this work? And I was in such a kind of spiritual high, I just assumed it was delivered. A, a, a punchline was delivered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I went to the comedy store that night, did the routine, the laughs are building. I hit them with this divine punchline. <laughs> nothing. Absolutely nothing. It bombed really, really badly. And I you went think back. Bahá'u'lláh as, was laughing? Well, the thing was, this is, this is, the truth of it is, I, had a, I went back to bed and I had an, another dream and the same guy came back to me. This, uh, this is and a, I'm not is kidding. This, this is not a joke. This okay. is not a joke. I'm I telling can't tell when you're setting up a joke. Because I've been, a I'm real in a story. prayerful state. Okay. And I say my prayers, I go to bed, and this guy, the same guy who's been in the dream the night before, comes up to me and says, I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> and I said, Who are you anyway? He goes, um, I just work, used to work in an office. I said, Are you Baha'i? He went, Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I said, are you a comedian? He went, no. I said, well, why are you saying? He goes, oh, well, I did the Christmas party and I really stormed it and everyone loved it. And I thought, <laughs> I thought I just, I heard the prayer and I thought I'd give you this line. And I said, you know what? Bahá'u'lláh, next time I said, could you send me a George Carlin or a Bill Hicks or a Lenny Bruce? Don't me send me some accountant <laughs> in Leatherhead in Surrey outside who just stormed a Christmas party once. So I think that was almost God saying, you have to do the hard work. We're, I, there's always a reason for these things. And you think, mm. no, actually, I hadn't done enough hard work. And actually, sometimes you can build a story and there is no punchline. You just have to stop, drop the, you have to drop the routine. But it was a real admonishment to work hard. I think in any work, if you work, speak to anybody, you, you meet Faribor Sahba, the guy who was, you know, helped put the ark together. He worked so hard. You know, it's, it's hard work. Mm. So that was a lesson I heard. And, and that whole thing of um, God helps those who help themselves. So when it comes to divine assistance, we're not just going to give you the jokes. Mm. If mm. you work hard, you help yourself. Kind of but thing. what a great, I mean, those... Those pieces of advice don't just hold true for comedians. They just hold true for people in life and for Baha'is, being Baha'is. Yeah. Um, and that last one, just be conscious of divine assistance. You know, if you, you know, we say every day in the, in the obligatory prayer, God is, I think about those, those, the phrases that God wants us to be known to know about him, and God is the help in peril. And mm. we, if we need help, we can call on God's assistance and uh, be assured of, of, of divine assistance. It's, it's so important to realize that. And also what you pray for is important because I've got another quick story for you. And mm-hmm. I, it's a very private story, but I did tell this to the Irish summer school this summer. And because it also involves soccer, you know, the World Cup was on and Iran were playing Morocco. I happened to be in Haifa at the time. And the game kicked off at 7 o'clock Haifa time and we're still by the Pilgrim House at 6.15. And I said to my wife, I'm just going to go in the shrine. She goes, you're not. I said, I have to. She goes, please tell me you're not going in there. I said, it's Iran is the cradle of the faith. They're playing tonight. <laughs> I, I just have you to You prayed say, for Iran. She goes, you can't do that. I said, I, I'm going to go in there. And I went in there. I went to the shrine of Abdu'l-Bahá. I felt <laughs> to go to the shrine of the Bab was a bit, a bit too, much. A bit much. A bit cheeky, A bit cheeky. <laughs> and there was no one in the shrine of Abdu'l-Bahá. So I had an internal conversation. I said, Abdu'l-Bahá, you know, you know I'm here. I said, I've got to go in a minute. Let's kick off in a few minutes. But I have to do this because I'm the only Iranian here in Haifa, even aware there's a game. And I have to say this prayer. I am not going to say a prayer for Iran to win because that wouldn't be right. Well, there are many Moroccan Baha'is. All I'm saying is if it gets to 90 minutes and it's 0-0, <laughs> give me something to get excited by. That's all. And I walked out quickly. <laughs> and we were watching the game. We're at the Dan Panorama, which is overlooking the, the, the terraces. And it's 90 minutes have gone. It's nil-nil. And in fact, Iran haven't even had a shot at goal in the second half. 93rd minute, there's a free kick. And I said to my wife, and she's reading a book, I said, look, watch this. She goes, what? I said, it's, it's, it's the last kick of the game. And the, I remember the Iranian pip guy kissed the ball, put it down, crossed the ball, and a Moroccan guy headed into his own net. Oh. The, I, and, and so Iran won 1-0. You could have heard us scream. I, I think Terrace 19 could hear me screaming. I was saying, prayers work, prayers work. And my wife just said, if prayers work, why don't you pray to lose a bit of weight now and again? <laughs> Just pray to like, cut some of the fat off your face. And it made me realise, actually, it was another lesson for me that prayers are so powerful, but be careful what you pray for. 
as well. So you can pray for your career. You can pray mostly to pray, pray to be of service. And I think that is might be my having done all the books one to seven now. I'm very service orientated. So I'm trying now to it's affected my comedy that I want people to laugh and I want people to think a bit, but I'm there to serve the people as a stand-up comedian. And I think that is what those four bits of advice that I was given back in 2007, which was all these things about don't listen to the Baha'is, be political, divine assistance, if it is serving the people. Mm, mm. And I think that was that's why I shared those four things, because it's all about service. Mm, that's beautiful. And uh, you brought up, uh, doing the Ruhi books, and um, you did two this summer, you said. I did six and seven this summer. Yeah. With your wife. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people might have the misunderstanding that, oh, you're a famous stand-up comedian, and you jet around the world doing stand-up specials, and that you are, uh, you're removed from, you're excused from having to do no. the... the the hard, Who intricate it, work. I don't know. I'm just. I'm that. thinking. I'm just thinking that perhaps uh, there might be some people with the with the misunderstanding that mm. you might think that you're excused from that. But I, I love that you're you're doing the Ruhi books. You're involved in the institute process, the core activities, and uh, how long have you been really active in in doing those in in your community? And what have you learned? What are your struggles? Um, what's it like being a comedian and being in the process of community building? Um, first of all, can I answer the the whole thing of the feeling that you're above it somehow or feeling that you've been excused? That would only mean that I would be depriving myself of oh, all this. because Because I did, early on, I did book one and two around 2000, 2002. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed them. And they were, it were in a nice group of friends. And I thought it was absolutely a brilliant process to get involved with the Baha'i writings. And I mean, maybe we went on a bit too long. What could have been done in three or four days was strong over six months, which is a bit crazy to me because I thought we we're going to do them intensively like over a week or on one holiday, we did it over four days and we just did blasted it two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon, two hours in the evening. And it was really exciting. And, and that whole sense of community building and saying prayers. I, th I think that, it's been easy. It's, I prayed for it to be a bit easy for me because then when I did the Ruhi process, we got a, an email out the blue that a group called Friends of Faith would like to come and hear about the Baha'i Faith. We are a group who are Christians who believe we should understand every faith. We are 50 people and we'd like to come to your house. And it was during the World Cup and they came. Uh, there was about 13, 14 people came. I gave an Anna's presentation in my own way and my son did some songs. And they were so receptive that they now hopefully will come and hear you. And, and there's that they, they actually even said, we consider ourselves Baha'is. And they said, this is marvellous. And it was made easy because then the France-Argentina World Cup game was on and most of them were into soccer. So we started watching the last half an hour of that as well. And it was, a, it was easy. It was made easy for me. That's why I was, I was saying prayers, make it easy for me. And, and it was, it was, it's been a tremendously exciting thing. And to, and to have people who are receptive was so wonderful and I always worried that I have to well I've got to teach the faith to other celebrities and they're not interested all more my friends are atheists and and you can't even get past God that's the first thing yeah, so sure. so to have people who were really receptive was was a wonderful thing and it was so much easier and also sometimes you if you haven't been teaching it's like a muscle if you haven't been teaching the faith for a while mm -hmm. you're not very good at it so mm -hmm. I thought I don't I started off being a pioneer in Czechoslovakia and 
why why have I let this ball drop? So consciously for the last few years, I've been trying to do all the books and and just make those conversations easier and more natural for me, whereas for a time they, they weren't. What other activities are you doing in your neighborhood and your community? We've I get involved in children's classes. Um, I was very involved in my my kids actually. They've all they've all taken on. I've got three kids who are. Were they part of the junior youth uh, spiritual yes, empowerment program? They and... were. Yes, my kids were very much involved in the junior youth program, and I was involved, but in, on a peripheral way, like driving mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. You go and get the food, bringing uh, cookies, bringing yeah. cookies. Mm-hmm. I was all that. I wasn't really involved, but I could see how it was affecting their lives. And, and I could see their relationships were getting stronger with their peers. So I thought, well, why can't I do that? So we started doing Ruhi classes, and, and it's been a tremendously connective. It's, it's a wonderful thing. And I'm just so glad because I, I would hate to have been deprived of it. And mm. you know, it's never too late. I'm 53 now, and I've been really getting into it in a big way. And I don't want to be... I have to tell you, back in the 90s, when, we, when I lived in Czechoslovakia, we had... Russ Garcia and yeah. Gina, they they were in their like late sixties and seventies, going around and doing their songs. His, and his daughter and granddaughter live in uh, our community. Really, always talking about the Garcias. The Garcias were yeah. amazing, and I and I in my head, I stupidly thought maybe when I get to seventy, I'll get a yacht and go around. I'll be like a rich celeb and arrive in yachts and just get an airport and then do a few bits of stand up comedy, teach the faith, and move on to the next place. And I thought that's. That's a crazy way to live. That was a mis- that's a misinformed way of looking at what, how what the Garcias did. So let's get involved with the here and now. Yeah, I mean, you it's, shouldn't use a yacht. You should use a yeah. private jet. <laughs> exactly. Like those uh, those preachers. Now, I, I, I need a 54-minute there because I need to fly not just from Oregon to Seattle. I need to fly around the world with no petrol stops. <laughs> I love all that stuff. So, yes, the, 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 the point is not to... Not to deprive yourself. That was a thing. And I and, and being involved, is, it's so joyful. I remember thinking that being a Baha'i should be joyful. It should, shouldn't be a chore. It and it's something be. you get to share with your wife? Something in your yeah, marriage you get to it's share? it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. good and it's fun. Mm-hmm. It's fun. And it's it's not it's not a humorless activity. It's now, you, you had some fun uh, recently speaking to a former House member uh, about uh, your experience with Book 4, and a little criticism you had about Book 4. Yes, I shared a criticism with the House member, Shahira Razavi, who was my age and was raised in Britain like me. And, and we share a similar sense of humour. But he said that when we go and meet Dr. Arbab, I'd like you to share it with him. And I said, I don't want to. This is mm-hmm. just between you and mm-hmm. me, Shahira. And, and Dr. Arbab, who kind of was the founder of the He's Ruhi the system. in Colombia yeah, yeah. and worked a lot. And yeah. I'm a very highly respected person. I did one of his moral education classes in Czechoslovakia and... 1992 and loved it and basically that was the beginnings of the Ruhi thing and uh, over lunch Shahira said uh, Mr. Arab Omid has a criticism of book four I said oh no really he, goes, no, he said share it with me and I said well there's a bit in book four I just think you're selective with Baha'i history he goes how so I said well there's a bit where the Bab says if only I could die at the hands of my friends and at the hands of my enemies at which point Anis gets up and says I'm ready to do your bidding and the barb looks at him and says you will die with me in the square tomorrow he said yes that's correct I said well you've missed a bit he said what the bit where Anis goes now hang on one second I've offered to kill you what's this nonsense about me dying in the square I never signed up to that you know, and he laughed, and then later on, he he took the idea and ran with it. Because I mean, I'm now having an image of the Barb and Anis together, held up by ropes, and Anis going, Psst, 
you got to get me out of this. You can do a miracle. And then when the shots miss and the, and the smoke dis dissipates, he goes, right, let's get out of here. And then they go back and go, we're going back again? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> so it's great that we had a laugh about it. So, um, and, that, and I think that's the thing you can, once you get into these things, uh, to even share an observation like that, I wasn't slapped down for it, which then I think that's what made me feel <laughs> that I'm okay in this process. Well, that's fantastic. But um, I had forgotten you had gone pioneering uh, to the Czech Republic. When when was this? How old were you? Were you doing stand-up at that time? Did you take time off? Did you have kids then? No, it was um, 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down. There was lots of Baha'is who were there giving out pamphlets on world peace to all the Eastern East Berliners. All the East Germans were coming across the border at the Brandenburg gates and... Some buyers were coming back saying, we've got to go, this is the place to be, this is an exciting time. The world is changing, these are tumultuous things. So we drove out to Berlin and I was before I knew it, I was giving out pamphlets to all... And, you know, East Berliners were really that communist stereotype. They were drably dressed, they all looked white, they were all undernourished, and they were like saying, ah, oh, just typical pure souls and... And I was moved, giving out these things. Welcome to the West. Here's a, what is this? as a Weltfrieden. It's world peace. Because, yeah, das ist schön. Das ist danke schön. And it was like amazing time. And then they said, there's going to be another revolution in Czechoslovakia. Let's go there. Like, so the Baha'is went there. There was a velvet revolution. And we met Baha'is who'd been Baha'is from 40 years ago. And then kind of Baha'is from behind the Iron Curtain. Behind the, who'd been Baha'is for 40 years, but yeah. had no contact with Baha'is, only through letters. So that was a very exciting time. And then I moved there. And I'm actually in that, you know that magazine, the, the Baha'i Faith, after the World Congress, there was a magazine called oh, yeah. Baha'i Faith. Mm -hmm. I'm on page three or four. There's the first local spiritual assembly of the Baha'is of Bratislava, which is Slovakia now. And you'll see me, big hair, like a jacket with my hands over, just standing over, you know, that typical Baha'i Persian hands crossed in front of him, looking really humble. <laughs> <laughs> that guy went on to be a stand-up comedian. I'm there, I'm there in the first picture, so my family was so excited. And, and I lived there for five years. And I, I was ending, I did like experimental theatre there, but really crazy experimental theatre. I'll never forget the first piece of theatre I was involved with. There was a... Have I told you that? I haven't told you this. Though. I don't know. The don't... weird stuff I was doing. You know, that really crazy experimental. Yeah, and the Eastern European theatre is, is fantastic. Mad. It is yeah. like the opening scene. It was like there's a, a goldfish coming from the top of this... Uh, goldfish on a string coming down on a lever. And there's someone with a, a tight pin spot, blackout pin spot. Someone with a cello playing one note. And, and the, the goldfish lowers down. Lights come up. And I'm there. I've got a Magnum 44. And I go, click. And a little explosive device makes the goldfish explode. And I shout Lenin at the top of my voice. Lenin! And there's a blackout. And there's like a standing ovation. <laughs> People went nuts. Saying, this is the greatest thing we've ever seen. So I ended up doing all this weird experimental theatre. But at the same time, being on the local assembly and teaching the faith. And it was a very, very exciting time. So, yeah, I ended up being there for five, five years. It was incredible. And then came back in 95 and... And then ended up, that's when my stand-up career really kicked off. But out of necessity, because I had no job, no money, and no one knew me. And mm -hmm. we, were doing, we were doing the Edinburgh Festival with kind of weird experimental theatre. So, uh, and that's how things kind of took off. That's fantastic. So what are you learning 
spiritually these days? Where are your spiritual tests at, and um, what have you gleaned? That's a great question, Rain. Um, for me, you know there are certain things you grow up in the Baha'i community, like prayer and meditation is very important. And I heard that a lot in the Baha'i community, but I didn't really fully understand it. And I realize now, looking back at it, I just wasn't in a family that prayed together. They, prayer and meditation was not a big deal for my parents. Mm. They weren't into that. Uh, we never said prayers as a family. You didn't? We never, never said prayers. In fact, when my mother passed away... Now, is that just a Jalili thing, or is that a Persian Baha'i thing? No, think? it's a Jalili thing. Mm -hmm. definitely Because a lot of Persian Baha'is, they say prayers in families. Whenever I say that, they went, what? You never did that. Mm. We never did that. In fact, when my mother passed away, I suggested, should we say some prayers for her? And they went, one of them said, I don't know who. I think my father said, why? And I said, <laughs> maybe we should pray for her soul and he said but she's gone and I said yeah but you know she she's maybe in the next life my dad just said there is no next life and I said what kind of Baha'i are you because I don't believe in anything and I said okay all right I get that dad you're not in a good space <laughs> right now we'd like to say some prayers so I think I said a couple of prayers and I remember just one more I glanced up just to see and they all just had their eyes open and I think there was I think one of them was even scratching his groin. I think my brother was like, <laughs> nobody was, they weren't really. And I said, look, this is, why should we, can we just like take this seriously? So I, I just wasn't raised in a family that prayed to. It didn't mean mm -hmm. they're a bad family, mm -hmm. but prayer and meditation, I don't think I fully understood it. So it was something in the last couple of years I've tried to uh, deepen myself. I'm trying to understand. So I came across this quote, which I, I think explains it very, very well. If I can share that with the, Baha'i blog, uh, there's a wonderful quote here that says, prayer is the essential spiritual conversation of the soul with its maker, direct and without intermediation. So you don't have to go through anyone. Mm -hmm. There's no priesthood or anything. No clergy, no, no translator. Exactly. It's the spiritual food that sustains the life of the spirit. Like the morning's dew, it brings freshness to the heart, cleanses it, purifying it from attachments of the insistent self. It is the fire the burns Which is Satan, the by the way. We've talked about that on this show before. The insistent self is the Baha'i concept of Satan. That's what Abdul Baha said when he yes. arrived in America. They said, do you believe in Satan? And he said, yes. He said, well, how do you describe Satan? He said, the insistent self. self. Yeah. So what is the that, me, what me, is me, that me. sentence uh, again? The, yeah, it, it, it does what to the insistent self? It, it, it pure, basically, like the morning's dew, it brings freshness to the heart and cleanses it, purifying it from the attachments of the insistent self. Uh -huh. The me, 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 me. It's the fire that burns away the veils and a light that leads to the ocean of reunion with the Almighty. Mm. On its wings does the soul soar in the heaven, heavens of God, the heavens of God. That's a plural. It's not just one heaven. Mm -hmm. There are mm -hmm. many worlds of God and draw closer to the divine reality. Upon its quality depends, the quality now of the prayer depends the development of the limitless capacities of the soul and the attraction of the bounties of God. And here's the bit I loved. But the prolongation of prayer is not desirable. And that's the thing I remember coming from a non-prayerful family and people saying, let's say, I remember once someone said, uh, we're going to start with some prayers and then we've got like two hours and then we're going to have a consultation. And they gave prayers to everyone. And he goes, Omi, could you just read the story? It starts on page 27 and it finishes on page 32. I said, now hang on one second. <laughs> This prayer session is going to last an hour and 15 minutes because 
Yes. I said, but that doesn't leave any time for consultation. Why are we saying prayers for now? He goes, well, we'd like you to do it. And then what I did, I just prayed. I went from 27 to the end of 32. And then he actually said, Ahmed, you didn't read the whole thing. I said, look, you're breaking the spirit of the prayer. He goes, we'd like you to read the whole thing. I said, well, I didn't. And there was tension in the room and I kind of ruined it. But what I'm saying is that I love this thing. It says, the pro- now we, we should talk about that, but the prolongation, what, what do you think that means? The prolongation well, I was is not say, desirable. I, 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 yeah, I think that it's, again, it's the quality of the prayer, not the quantity. So... It's if you say a short prayer with a pure heart and a radiant heart and uh, and in in beseeching your Creator, in really connected, it's better than saying a thousand you know mm. fire tablets or tablets of Ahmad. But I also imagine, and maybe I just made this up, that it has something to do with in the. Back in the old days, there was something like you were considered more holy the longer you prayed. Oh, yeah, that's so stupid. Someone might be an ascetic and go into a cave and pray for 18 days straight. And people would be like, oh, that's Omid. He prayed for 18 days straight. He's so spiritual. And Mm -hmm. I think this is saying like, no, no, no. It It really has nothing to do with with the quantity, with the length of the prayer. So before I go on stage and say, you know, God, give me laughs tonight. Thanks. That's enough. There you go. That's a prayer. That's, it's said with real sincerity. And I love that. I just love that that's in the Baha'i writing. The but, prolongation is not desirable. But, but prayer is, is, is so interesting, and I've talked about it before on the show. I, I, I have such a negative reaction to children and youth in the Baha'i faith being trained to say prayers out of a prayer book, yeah. especially now that they're on the phone. They open up their phone like they're opening up <laughs> Candy Crush, and they're... Read, you know, they read that prayer in that kind of that lackluster voice. Oh, Lord. And there isn't any spirit or soul or connection to it. And I'd, when we pray with our son, if he does that at all, we say, you know what? Let's stop. Let's look at what this prayer is saying. And let's, let's say it again. And let's really try and connect with Baha'u'llah. Mm-hmm. Turn our hearts. We've been to Baji. What is it like? Let's picture Baji in our in our minds and and beseeching God, opening our, our hearts like a like one of those radar that's attuned to the stars, you know, those radar dishes. And 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 we try it again. Because I, I think that a short prayer, but said with great focus and and a, and a big heart is is more powerful. I, I believe that. I really do. And it's, as to what it actually is in, in this quote, it really is a connection between you and this divine spirit. So it really is a conversation, and it really is in this wide, massive world where yeah. you're just a tiny speck. You can somehow connect with an almighty being mm-hmm. and have a one-on-one conversation and just basically saying, help me. Mm. Help me, because mm. that's major- even atheists say. At my worst times, I think if there is something out there, please help me. And that's kind of, to me, what prayer is. And you can pray for. I mean, I've seen people in the shrines saying, "Help me, God," and they're literally moving, putting fingers towards their pockets, like I'm doing the money. I need money. Wow. <laughs> I've seen people say, "Please, get need some cash now." I've seen people mumbling, "Cash, I'm dying." <laughs> Are you a lip reader? How are you? I'm watching these people like the shrine. But why are you stalking people in the the shrines? He's 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 pulling out his empty pockets. His pockets are inside out. The white bits are trailing out. Is he eating a bit of bread crust or something? He's basically he's putting his you know that rubbing thing with your thumb and the two fingers because I need cash. (laughs) I've seen people do that. And is that wrong? No, because you're asking. For help, and I, mm-hmm. and I think that's what it is. I know in my time, 
I pray for help. I need help. And I love that. And I think that that is in the Baha'i writings and it's okay to do that. But such prayer will transcend the limitations of words and go well beyond mere sounds. Help me! The sweetness of its melodies will gladden and uplift the heart and reinforce the penetrating power of the word, transmuting earthly inclinations into heavenly attributes and inspiring selfless service to humankind. And that is what it's about. Inspiring selfless service to humankind. That that is what validates everything. If that is your sincerest, you know, really authentic drive that you want your life to be relevant, to be helpful, to be service, to, to have service to humankind, that prayer will be answered. Mm. It reminds me of one of my favorite books is by the author Anne Lamott, Annie Lamott. She did Bird by Bird. She's done a lot of amazing books. She writes about spirituality. I think she's Christian. And she has a book about prayer called Help, Thanks, Wow. <laughs> I love it. And those are essentially she she boils it down that there are three essential types of prayer: mm. help, thanks, and wow. Okay, so we, we can pray for assistance, pray for gratitude. What yep. would be wow from, from behind? Just, I, I get and pray. I think praise. I think praise. Like wow, this is. Mm. It's kind of gratitude. It's connected to, to gratitude. It's just. It's the miracle of life. We're alive. I mean, this is amazing. You and me, Omid, yeah, it's right? Great. You, you and I. We have these. We're, we have these blips of consciousness residing somewhere in our soul, body, I love you. flesh, If you're and, not watching brains. this, our, our faces are coming closer, closer to each other. Closer and closer together. <laughs> <laughs> and um, no one's watching this. <laughs> How would they be watching this? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's miraculous. We've had these lives where we're mm. professional entertainers, we're, we're Baha'is, we've had our struggles and made our mistakes and we're, we're trying our best and we're having a conversation about and reading these beautiful quotes. I mean, it, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. But I, I, to me, when I feel disconnected, the best way for me to get connected is prayers of gratitude. And I don't even mm-hmm. open the prayer book sometimes. Sometimes I just, I'm like, Baha'u'llah, thank you. Just for simple things. Thank you for this breakfast. Thank you, you know for what? this Can wonderful I... life that I have. Thanks for this opportunity. Thanks for th- this book that I'm reading. Thanks for, you know, this trip that I've gotten to take. Just we, we can get into so easily into um, um, begrudging um, negativity uh, and looking at the faults in our lives and the flaws around us and the anxieties that beset us and to, to turn toward 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 just just simple gratitudes can can shift our entire day and i'll say that uh, there's this great guy that i subscribe to his blog called jeff kober k-o-b-e-r and you can get a daily email from him about meditation and he's a he's a great spiritual thinker uh, not a baha'i and he talked about how um, focusing on gratitude is like learning to write with your left hand so it feels really awkward at first and you have to train yourself to do things with your left hand. So to focus towards towards gratitude, towards seeing things with a spiritual lens is like is like training yourself to do stuff with mm. your non-dominant hand. And I thought that was a really beautiful way of, of looking at it as well. Because our natural inclination is to go towards negativity, anxiety, fear, de- depression, resentment. It's just very easy, especially in our culture these days, to, to head down that path. Do you know, you've just said everything so beautifully. 
And I had the same thought this summer, that gratitude is very important. And I had that thought when I was uh, driving and I stopped and let someone go by. It was, it was very, very wise driving. I thought, well, if I stop here, that guy who's stuck can come through. And they came through. And I put my hand up saying, it's OK. And the guy didn't say thank you. And I, I went, son of a... <laughs> say thank you! <laughs> what the hell? How did you think you are? Then it made me think, wow... There's I do that too when I'm driving. The, the resentful, you're welcome. Yeah, when yeah. I say I'm driving like, you're welcome. Exactly. You know? <laughs> but what must that be like for this um, this God? He goes, well, I mean, we just had a prayer for mommy. He's about to go on stage. Prince Charles is 70 bit. Okay, help him. And then if there's no thanks, eh, screw that guy. He never said thanks. So, so it's God important. is shouting down to Omid, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's what's going on. I think that if you if you show praise, and it, it, it creates a relationship. I think that's what it is. It's not just a one-way thing, help me, help me, help me. There has to be the odd time you say thank you, and then you go into wow. The wow to me is once you've created the relationship, then You've created the relationship, but then beyond that, you know what? There's more to come. There's a wow factor. Mm -hmm. If you buy into this more, that you can be, your mind will be blown. How do you live in the wow? Talk about living in the now, living in the wow. That's it. You've just said something very interesting. It's living in the wow, and it would, it would. I know that when I get really into the Baha'i writings, I don't stop because my brain gets blown, and I have to stop. Do you mm -hmm. ever get that where you suddenly your mind's blown because? What's beyond this life and then beyond that? And they go, ah! 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 <laughs> do you get like that? I, I can't do it anymore. I just start screaming. Like Sam Kinison. <laughs> like Robert Mugabe. Yeah. <laughs> but do you get like that? You suddenly go, la, 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 la. I don't understand. I can't, my brain can't fathom it. But it's exciting as well. That's fantastic. Now, we were talking earlier about our uh, marriages. We've been married almost the same amount of time. I was mm. married in 95. You were married in 93? 92. 92. And um, we're recently learning, only after 20 years or mm. 15 years, of uh, how marriage is like a fortress for well-being. Um, do you want to talk about that? Like, yeah. experience of... Of, of uh, a newfound of experience of, uh, of marriage uh, later into your marriage? We talked about this in a, in a specific lull during the Chelsea-Manchester United game when I think the players were taking a bit of a break and nothing much was going on. And we were just saying how t t words like a fortress for well-being is something we'd always heard that, but we didn't really know what it meant. And it's only now I get it. First of all, the word well-being is very important. We're always looking for well-being. I know in the summer... I look at myself, I was swimming every day, I was on holiday, eating good food, I wasn't doing too many carbs, lost a bit of weight. There was well-being. Now I'm a bit of a slob and I've got nothing but acids flowing through my arteries. <laughs> I've been eating carbs, I don't feel that well. But then when you think of the fortress as another thing, a marriage can be like a fortress because life is a struggle, life is a battle, life sometimes is a war. And you need a safe place your home should be a fortress mentally, physically, and spiritually. So it's a place where you can just be yourself. You can laugh and you can be with someone and your family where that is it's closed off and, it, and you can then recuperate, actually, mm -hmm. and be yourself and really grow and then get ready for the next day before you go out in the world. So M. Scott Pack describes marriage, uh, like ideal marriages, two people in support of each other's spiritual growth. That's and very in support of their of each other's spiritual journey. Yes, I thought that was 
like the most Baha'i way of, and that's in A Road Less Traveled, for those of you who haven't read that. I read that years ago, yeah. Book. Great book. Yes, my, my mom, probably sometimes my wife said, you know, we've been talking about you for like 26 years. Maybe could I say something? Because I'm quite happy to pontificate. She goes, my God, you ramble so much. You go on about yourself. You know, I realise I never really asked anything about her. I just thought it was all about me. But I, I do think it is about each other's spiritual growth and how wonderful it is to be there for someone else. But it really is a fortress. And I think that that's something that I've really understood and really appreciated and really give thanks for that. Because if you consciously build the fortress, make it stronger, make it more beautiful. Like, for example, my wife and I, we, we realise we like waking up early and having a coffee together because no one else is involved. And now what we do, it used to be 7 a.m. You have three kids, they're off in university. They're all off in, they're all off in the world, and, they're all doing their own thing. Yeah. So now we wake up even earlier. We get, even if we go to bed at one or two, the alarm is set for six and we drag us, someone drags, goes downstairs to make the cup of coffee. I don't know why we don't have it in the room. We could just make it There in you room. go. That's one thing I just thought I should change. But they, we, we make coffee. We a fortress for good coffee. A fortress for good coffee and we have a coffee. And it's just... We don't even put the TV on. We just want to have us. And it's when you put the time into the relationship, that's when the fortress gets stronger. Mm. And that's something I've really appreciated. That's something I've, we've consciously been working on. Consciously scheduling time yes. to connect. Yes, I think that's important. Do you pray or read the writings yeah. or, and, and share in that way? Because Besides doing Ruhi classes. Well, but things like Baha'i Blog have great music. You have you have new YouTube clips and people have put prayers out. So sometimes we'll play a bit of music. It doesn't have to be, say, a prayer. But we will often have a period like that. Mm-hmm. And then we'll have a period of just chatting and talking. And then, you know, I, I read Jeff Bezos, the head of Amazon, he said to be successful. And then everything he said is what we do. We wake up, have a coffee, potter around. Mm. A couple of hours of pottering around. Then he has a breakfast with his... And he schedules his first meeting, the important ones are in the morning when your brain's working, mm-hmm. at 10, and then the fun ones are in the evening. So if you have a very important one, it's at 10, and then the people that you like with not that important, you put them, schedule them at four or five, and mm. then you're back home again. But I realized that maybe that's just what conscious, enlightened people do now. They spend time together consciously, have coffees, potter, pottering around is part of the process. Mm. Just pottering around. Oh, there's a sock in the corner. That, that's an eyesore. I'll put that in the laundry bin. <laughs> you know, it's pottering. I love that. Oh, a coin here. Oh, when you do that, don't bend over next to I think to that's me. a good reality show for you. Pottering around. Pottering around. But it's a good way to start the day. And if Jeff Bezos does it, then it's good enough for me. Great. Omid, thanks so much. This was so much fun to have this conversation. Oh, it's and, wonderful. Uh, wonderful. I wish I could. Uh, we should uh, do my podcast. Yeah. I we'll don't just, have one, but we'll I'll just do continue one. the conversation. Yeah, yeah. I think that'd be fantastic. Okay. It's been, you're a fantastic host, and I hope people. I hope you cut out all the the, the filth. We, we talked a lot of filth today. <laughs> And I apologize. We're gonna cut out if, some of the filth. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna test the friends by leaving just a little bit of it in. There's gonna be a test audience. You're gonna put this in front of a test audience. No, we're going to test the. Oh, friends. Oh yes, they'll be tested. We're oh, gonna God. create tests and difficulties. I used to ask my Baha'i teacher at summer school when I was a kid growing up as a Baha'i, like, well, if tests and difficulties are so good, why don't we just be the cause of tests to other people? <laughs> That's a great observation. <laughs> you know, like, but you know, Baha'u'llah said, "Be no source of harm to anyone." Of course, but why not? Yeah, why not? We're always a test. I was if I threw test. you through this window right now, that would be and you and you broke your arm, 
That would be a colossal test for you. No, but then, and you would grow so much spiritually, and you would be thanking yes, me. I, I would remember. It would be a reminder of a talk I heard that actually there's the laws of physics. There's saying your prayers and reading your writings is spiritual food in the same way that if you throw yourself out of a window thrown by Rain Wilson, you will break your bones. I'll never forget Jack McCants, who gave the most amazing speech about the spiritual reality and the physical reality being so close together. Like if you go out of a window, you break your bones. He goes, and he said, look at this. we got a goldfish in a bowl. And you have a goldfish in a bowl. Goes, Did you see him do this? He goes, Mm-mm. there's a goldfish in a bowl. Now, the goldfish needs the water because that's the way it keeps alive. Now, that's your, that's your prayers and that's your writings every day. The goldfish in a bowl, the bowl is life, but the water there is your prayers and your writings. And you get the goldfish bowl and you throw the goldfish out. And, and then the, the people go, ah, there's water. And he goes, but that's your soul there. That's the fish going flip-flop. That's what happens. We don't say your prayers and your writings. People said, but the fish, you go, don't touch the fish. The fish going to die. <laughs> Leave the fish. And then the, someone put the fish back, get some water. Put it again. Now that's a lesson for y'all to realize you got to say your prayers <laughs> and read the writings. And people say, that's so extreme. The guy's crazy. But it taught me a very important lesson that actually... We are, it's the laws of physics. He so didn't actually. He actually threw the fish. He, he emptied the goldfish bowl on the in front of he all the He literally did it. He didn't just describe it. In front of everyone. It. And we were, people go, oh, the fish is going to die. What kind of crazy vibe <laughs> creature is going to kill a fish to make a point? Because I'll never go and kill a fish. Just to give a little example for y'all. And he was just, I was so taken by this. But I you thought, never forget that I'll spiritual lesson. I'll never forget lesson. that. So mm-hmm. if you threw me out the window, I'd see that as a, just some kind of spiritual lesson. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Omid. Thanks for taking me to my first Premier League soccer match. It was it was fun, wasn't it? It was great. And thanks for riding me around London on the back of your motorcycle. During the protests as well, I'm that so was, sorry. That was crazy. A half hour journey you ride took an like hour. You like a lunatic. No, you're come a master, on. You're a masterful. I wasn't bad, was I? You're 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 going down this through the center of lanes in the in the wrong way on on, on lanes driving American style down London streets, <laughs> um, but it was awesome. It was. I used to a, watch Chips. I love that show. <laughs> you're like, you Eric Estrada. I want be, to be Eric Estrada riding those motorcycles. I finally you're got Persian to Persian Chips <laughs> kebabs. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.